0: I'm Chidam Balem, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and musicians, and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is Yasser Suleiman. Yasser Suleiman is His Majesty Sultan Qabus bin Said, Professor of Modern Arabic Studies, and a Fellow of King's College. His research covers the cultural politics of the Middle East, with special focus on identity, language, conflict, diaspora studies, and modernization. Professor Suleiman's many books include the forthcoming Arabic Self and Identity, a study in conflict and displacement. Also, A War word of Words, Language and Conflict in the Middle East, the Arabic language and national identity, a study in ideology, and many others. Professor Suleiman is a fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, where he worked for many years, formerly the head of the Department of Middle Eastern Studies, and the founding director of the Prince Al-Walid bin Talal Center of Islamic Studies at the University of Cambridge. Yasir, thank you for being here today. Thank you. Can we start with your book, which really interests me Arabic Self and Identity? What do you say in the book?
1: Well, the book is an attempt to try to link the question of language and identity not just at the group level, but at the level of the person, the individual. How do languages um, come to represent and to express a person's persona? And a person's identity. And I tried to do this by, first of all, doing an autoethnography, a study of my use of language, and particularly Arabic, uh, in a very well defined setting. When I used to work in uh, language teaching reforms in the Gulf region, I studied myself for a number of, 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 of years, for about three and four years. And out of that, I try to see how the Arabic language comes to express different aspects of my personality. And the book also looks at how persons express their identities through their autobiographies. So I look at Edward Said in his book, Out of Place. I look at other autobiographies that have been written and other books. And I try to show that these people who have straddled different worlds, uh, their own world in the Middle East and mostly America and Europe, have come to see themselves living in two, not just two worlds, two geographies, but also two languages, where the languages are always interacting with each other, talking to each other. What is interesting in it, and particularly in the case of Saeed, is how towards the end of his life, Arabic came in symbolic terms to assume a great part in his life. In fact, after his death, a posthumous article was published called Living in Arabic, in which Saeed talks about how he lived in Arabic uh, all throughout his life, although his intellectual and academic career was conducted through English.
0: That's very interesting. Mm. That's very interesting. Talking about Arabic, Mm. can you tell us a bit about why... Students take Arabic. Why students take Arabic at Cambridge, uh, for example, uh, in the UK?
1: I think there are different motivations for uh, studying a language. Generally, we try to conceptualize these under the two headings: people who want to do a language for integration reasons; they want to come to know the language community that they are studying and to come to know it from the inside, not just the outside. And there are people who do it for instrumental reasons, uh, for reasons of career. That career can be in the diplomatic world, it can be in banking, it can be in the NGOs, it can be in intelligence services, it can be in industry. So the motivations are different, and they're not always very pure. Nobody does it for instrumental reasons. There's always a mixture of instrumentality and an attempt to come to know another culture. So that is one one dimension of it. The other one is that uh, doing Arabic uh, for some people is an attempt to try to challenge themselves. Arabic is not an easy language. They will have done European languages generally. Doing Arabic or Chinese or Japanese is a challenge they like to to undertake, uh, a challenge that, that is important for them to prove themselves to themselves perhaps. And there are some people who do it because of heritage reasons. Um, As you know, our world is very open, very porous. People are moving from place to place. And people of second generation and third generation, they want to study the language of their fathers or their grandfathers and the cultures of their fathers and their grandfathers. So the reasons for studying Arabic at the undergraduate level are are varied and they differ from student to student. Um, But ultimately, I think, uh, people want to do it because they think it's exciting, they think it is something new, something different. And of course, they hope that it will lead to some career path that will lead to more excitement and, and uh, adventure in the future, if I may put it that way.
0: It is uh, springtime in the Arabic-speaking uh, countries down in the Middle East. And uh, you have been uh, following very keenly on the radio. Can you give us a little peek into uh, what the Arabic broadcastings are um, saying?
1: Well, first of all, what we see in the Arabic-speaking world now, um, what we have seen in Egypt, in Tunisia, and we've seen elsewhere, is a popular expression of a genuine desire for people to get freedoms back, to get democracy, to take control of their lives, to try to take responsibility also for what they do. Um, Now, what we see, therefore, is a new horizon emerging in the Arab world. And the people who are at the cutting edge of this horizon are the young people who have grown tired uh, of the old mantras of security, of phobias and fears. And they just want to shape their countries and their futures uh, using their own initiatives. So what you see there is truly a new dawn. Uh, I don't call them revolutions. I prefer to call them uprisings. The reason why I don't prefer to call them revolutions is that um, in revolutions generally there are very well-defined ideologies. There are also well-defined leaderships. And, uh, for example, you look at the Bolshevik Revolution and the uh, Cultural Revolution in China, we knew what the programs were, we knew who the leaders were, whereas we don't really know what the programs of these uh, movements in the Arabic-speaking world are. You can't in Tunisia or Egypt or elsewhere name the leaders of these movements. There are many leaders and the leadership is dispersed um, and, it, and found in many locations. So what we really have are genuine popular uprising by people who want to have freedom to choose their own leaders, to express their own views without fear, to meet and to organize, and that in itself is is, is a good thing. So I I think there's a new dawn. Uh, it is a it is a spring, but also there's a big big huge dawn in that spring, and I hope that the spring will continue and the dawn will not turn into a dusk as it <laughs> were. Uh, so let's let's continue to be uh, cheerful about it. What is also mm-hmm. interesting about this is that. This sort of big scaremongering about Islam and Islamist politics has proven itself to be a fear that uh, one needs to take seriously but doesn't need to be frightened by it. Now, Islamist movements are actually in a crisis at the moment. Those who wanted to use violence to bring down Mubarak and to bring down Ben Ali, uh, Mubarak in Egypt and Ben Ali in Tunisia, using Islam as a way of, of, of achieving this, have failed to do so, whereas peaceful demonstrations, people through peace and peaceful assembly and demonstration have been able to do what the Islamists wanted to do but have failed to do, mm-hmm. and that 's the defining moment for the islamist uh, politics of of, of, of the arabic speaking world. Uh, the Islamists are now trying to find ways of claiming some credit for what had happened, but People are not buying it from, from them. So we, we see a defining moment uh, in, our, in, in, in the modern history and the contemporary history of the, of the Arab world in that respect. The Islamists are not taking credit. They can't take credit for it. Where ordinary people demonstrating peacefully have been able to do what Islamists have wanted to do but have failed to do. And that can't be but a good thing for that part of the world.
0: Talking about um, Islam... I know that you have recently finished one part of um, research about Muslims in Britain, and that's very interesting. Could you um, talk a little bit about that? Yeah. The project is called Contextualizing
1: Islam in Britain. Uh, It is a project funded by the government. It was given to the University of Cambridge on a competitive basis. Other people applied And the government in the end decided to give it to us. Now, in a nutshell, what the project is trying to do is to define what it means to be a British Muslim. People talk about hyphenated identities, uh, British and Muslim, or Muslim and British. Uh, What we wanted to do through this project is to try to define what being a British Muslim means as as one uh, unhyphenated identity the project brought about brought uh, about 25 people to cambridge who met over five weekends to discuss issues of uh, islam and secularism islam and muslims and citizenship the responsibilities that come with being a citizen in the united kingdom questions of plurality questions of sexuality and also a look at sharia as a path of moral living trying to go behind and beyond Sharia, to the purposes of Sharia, and to use those purposes of Sharia to say that the ethical, moral uh, map of the Sharia uh, is what really matters, and also to say that the Sharia has never been static, it has always been changing, and it has always sort of taken positions that suit the times and the geographies in which it found itself. So Muslims in Britain, as I'm sure Muslims in America, are in a minority, but they are citizens of those countries. And what they need to do is to be able to find ways of bringing their own civil, uh, civic citizenship and their own religion together in a way that serves their own countries where they live. Uh, And that's what we have tried to do. We have been very self-critical. but At the same time, we have been trying to offer young people in Britain ways of rethinking their own positions in society, identities in society, in a way that is true to Islam, but also true to the responsibilities of being a British citizen in the United Kingdom.
0: That's very interesting. The second thing um, I'm going to ask is you have a way of uh, doing a research project. I know that because I uh, know your work. And then you take the same work and you turn it into an outreach activity. In other words, you bring the society, the common man on the street, into the research and take the research to that person. How do you do that leveling?
1: Well, I mean, this is a very interesting and very important uh, point to look at. People talk about ivory towers, academic sliver ivory towers, and particularly on maybe on the humanities and perhaps to a lesser extent on the social sciences side. And if you come to Cambridge, then you see the ivory towers with your own eyes. You don't actually have to imagine them. You just see the towers and you, you could see that, well, I can live here and I can just get isolated and isolate myself from society. I personally believe that uh, the academic must become a public figure uh, and a responsible public figure. The academic must uh, produce knowledge that's evidence-based, that is well-argued, that is nuanced – and that knowledge must be taken out to society for society to discuss, debate, agree with, disagree with, and develop or reject. Now, in order to do that, our activities that we do are always research-based. But at the same time, we try to bring out reports that are for the general person to read and in a very you know, they're sort of user-friendly and reader-friendly reports. But we combine that also sometimes with roadshows. So we take our work to different parts of the United Kingdom, and we bring people who are interested in that work to discuss it, debate it. And when we take it to uh, outside the big centers, then the local media is also interested in it. The local media takes an interest, the newspaper, the press media, the the radio, local TV. And what we're trying to do is just take this work to parts of the country that we normally do not reach in a user-friendly way, but without compromising the integrity of the work we do because we are not a think tank and we do not want to act like a think tank. We are a university center which prides itself in doing research that is evidence-based, research that is socially responsible, but also research that interacts with different sectors of the society.
0: Here I think we should give a little break and um, ask you about your um, first music choice and uh, if you would tell us why you have chosen that. I know that you would like to hear Louis Armstrong uh, sing What a Wonderful World. Why that?
1: Because I think the world is wonderful. Uh, Genuinely think that the world is, of course, we have lots of problems. We have Um, lots of tragedies in our lives that affect us directly but also with the global village things that happen hundreds of thousands of miles away are things that you see and impact on you in different ways but I do believe that the world is wonderful and I believe that it's important to think about it in that way but also I see it that way because my younger son He's um, interested in jazz music. He's only 19 and he's at university now, but he's always been interested in jazz music as a young boy. And he picked up the saxophone and started to play it and started to get better and better at it and to sort of join concerts and play with his friends. And he's a great lover of this particular piece of music. Um, and uh, as we were moving house from Edinburgh to Cambridge, I was going through our possessions and he uh, spotted my collection of um, LPs uh, from years and years ago. And then as he was going through them, he just saw this LP with Louis Armstrong and with uh, What a Wonderful World is on it. And then he said to me, Dad, I must congratulate you on your good taste in music. <laughs> <laughs> and when he said that, I thought, well, well done. I've done myself uh, uh, a great service by, by liking this song. It's a great song. I like Louis Armstrong, I like his voice, I like the message that comes out. And although I can't sing myself, but the music is always on my mind every day I wake up, what a wonderful world.
2: I see trees of green
1: Red roses too
2: I see them blue And I think to myself, what a wonderful
0: world. We've been speaking with Professor Yasser Suleiman of Cambridge University. Tell us a little bit about Yasser, the husband, the father. You travel all around the world, and we know that you do not sleep because you manage so much and you do so much and you love people uh, I also know that because I know you give us a little bit of a tiny peek into your uh, private world how do you manage all that what do you do
1: I have restless feet and I've always felt that life is short and it's now even my perception of it now is getting shorter and shorter, shorter and shorter as I get older and older, and uh, there are so many things that interest me, and therefore I feel that I I need to get involved in those things. There's a downside to this. Actually, sometimes one's wife, more than anybody else, pays the price for it. But I have a wonderful wife, and she always supports me. She has sacrificed a lot to support my aspirations and ambitions. My two sons are also uh, a great support, Um, they now fancy this lifestyle. I'm trying to say to them, it's not really a good lifestyle. Uh, It's better to perhaps spend more time uh, sitting than than standing on your feet. Um, So I think I'm driven by um, this perception that life is short and that one has to do as much as possible in that. But there are, of course, prices, as I've said. I think to some extent I saw that in my father. And my father, I felt, had ambitions for me. But my father died when I was 13. And somehow my father is living inside me all the time. And perhaps in some ways, I'm trying to fulfill the ambitions that my father had for me. But he himself lived his life that way. Perhaps it is sort of socially, genetically passed on to to, to us. Um, in fact, before I travel, I hate my bags. I don't want to look at them. I don't really want to look at my passport But then the moment I just get onto the plane, for example, coming to Indiana now, the buzz, you know, gets into me. And then meeting people, uh, discussing uh, things with people, but also learning. I mean, I think travel is a way of learning about um, people, about oneself. So it's, it's a constant way of learning about people, oneself, about different cultures. I'm sort of curious, and that's what really drives me, the curiosity that I have. Just I'm hoping that the curiosity will not kill me one day because the cat was killed by curiosity.
0: <laughs> you you are from Jerusalem. Yes, I am. And you you finished your BA, your first BA, I should say, in Jordan, English literature. It was English literature indeed. And you came to uh, Great Britain, and you got your PhD in linguistics. It's true. And then St. Andrews. Correct. Uh, Scotland. And um, if I remember correctly, then you did something unusual. You went back to get a second BA, this time in classical Arabic in Durham, and you studied Syriac as well. Several years later, you came to Edinburgh, and you gave life to an old department which was pretty old by then, and on a uh, really last breath, and you raised thousands and thousands and thousands of donations and uh, on your own. How do you do this? What is well, your trick? I mean, I, I've looked at the amount of money you have raised. It, it, is, it is in um, sterling pounds uh, um, over... Um, 8 million, 10 million, if I add the uh, the ones in Scotland, of pounds. Well, over
1: the last – actually, I was calculating this um, for an application that I had to put in for, for, for a fund, and over the last seven, eight years, it was 21 million pounds that uh, I've managed to raise through donations but also research grants. Just to go back to my first BA in Jerusalem, and, um, let me just say that um, – Yes, my first BA was in English literature. I really enjoyed doing English literature because I'm interested in literature. And then I did the PhD in linguistics in St. Andrews, where Prince William uh, and Kate Middleton studied and met. And I was appointed as a lecturer in linguistics at the University of St. Andrews in the 80s, early 80s, 82, 83. And then the funding council, the council that gives money to the universities in the United Kingdom, had a very severe round of university cuts, financial cuts. And then they wrote to the University of St. Andrews and they said they must close down my department, uh, the Department of Linguistics. By then I was still sort of looking for a work permit because I was still a student and I wasn't naturalized British. And the um, vice-chancellor at the time took pity on me and he just uh, wrote to me and he said, come and see me. So I went to see him and he said... "Um, Yasser I said to him, yes, uh, Vice-Chancellor. In American terms, that would be president and um, or provost. And he said to me, um, I am deploying, deploying, I'm sending you to the Department of Arabic Studies. And I said to him, yes, to do what? He said to teach Arabic. And I said to him, but I can't teach Arabic. I don't know how to teach Arabic. I haven't studied Arabic to be able to, be able to teach it. And he said, um Answer this question, I said to him, I said, are, are you an Arab? I said, yes. He said, do you speak Arabic? I said, yes. He said, you can't teach Arabic. I said to him, being young and experienced, I said to him, Vice Chancellor, are you an Englishman? He said, yes. I said, do you speak English? He said, yes. I said, can you teach English? He said, no. And then he said to me, in that case, we'll have to retrain you. And then uh, I was offered the opportunity to go and do an undergraduate degree. I was actually already an assistant professor in American University terms. So I took the opportunity and I absolutely loved it. So I did Arabic, uh, classical Arabic, Syriac, and I did a bit of classical Hebrew also, and then also Persian. So it was something that was almost forced upon me, but I absolutely adored it. Uh, actually, three four years after that, when I was offered the chair at the University of Edinburgh, the Iraq chair of Arabic and Islamic studies, the university wanted to retrain staff. And I was a senior professor now. And then I was the first volunteer. I volunteered to be retrained a a fourth time. And then the university asked me, what is it I wanted to retrain as? And I said, in law. And they said, why? Because I said, I want to become a lawyer and leave university life completely. So those challenges are are the fun of learning. The fun of learning with young people is something I have with me all the time. And even now, I wouldn't mind going back and doing some sort of undergraduate degree with young people afresh, although I think I wouldn't be able to, to do all the wonderful things they do with computers. I can do some of them, but not all of them. So this fun of learning and the curiosity that comes with it, the challenge that comes with it, is is, is um, something that I I have sort of nurtured and wanted to keep with me for, for a long time, and perhaps it will die with me one day, uh, as I die myself. So this is how it came about to do uh, a second undergraduate um, degree. Now, as far as my Jerusalem is concerned, um, I was born in Jerusalem, East Jerusalem. I was uh, brought up there. I went to school there. My first school was a German school in Jerusalem, uh, which accepted boys for two years. It was a girls' school, but accepted boys for two years. My two sisters were there. Uh, One of them was boarding there, uh, and the other one wasn't. And uh, Jerusalem was a wonderful place and, and in great city it was the old city Wall city was a living city in the sense that people made pots and made things and you could hear people banging and you go through the spice market and, and, and you can smell the spices you go through the vegetable markets and you can s- smell the scent of 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 um, thyme and mint and sage coming in the morning you could sort of be blindfolded and your your nose will just take you around the city and you travel in the city. And that sense of an old city has remained in me. And I I love traveling in old cities, Um, Aleppo, Fez, um, the old cities, Sana'a in Yemen, uh, Istanbul, the Bazaar, the Grand Bazaar in Istanbul is a place which I absolutely love and adore. So those places have remained with me. And I'm just hoping that uh, when the time for me to come... My will will be put into effect and I will be taken back to be buried in Jerusalem. That's where I want to be buried.
0: Oh.
1: Under a fig tree, because I'm a lover of figs. It's all specified in my will. And my wife thinks that I'm being silly. Uh, she keeps saying to me that figs have are known to have brutal roots. And if I'm a, under a fig tree, she says that their roots will just be... Boring through my body But I said to her I've eaten so many figs I feel that It would be I think Just and fair To feed one or two fig trees For other people to To enjoy <laughs> eating some good <laughs> figs Perhaps Nurtured by my own Sort of decay, <laughs> Decaying body <laughs> In a grave somewhere
0: <laughs> Having spent so much time in, um, in Edinburgh And in Scotland In general Do you have a favorite memory of uh, Scotland? I mean, you you feel half Scottish. I I do know that you have very, very close uh, friends there and you um, love the country.
1: Scotland has been a second home to me. I spent most of my adult life in Scotland. Actually, most of my life now has been spent in Scotland. And I went to Scotland by choice. Arabs who... Come to the United Kingdom. Prefer to be in London and surrounding areas. And when I went to the British Council in Amman, Jordan, uh, to ask about studying in the UK, and I said I wanted to go to Scotland, the um, director of the British Council almost fell of his seat, and he said, "Okay, just sit down." Sat me down, got me a cup of coffee, and he said, "Are you serious?" And I said, "Yes." What is? Why do you ask me this? He said. I think you're the first Arab that was asked to go to Scotland. But uh, Scotland is a place that fascinated me as a young boy in Jerusalem because we had to study a poem. It turns out to be by Keats where it says there was a naughty boy and a naughty boy was he. He went to Scotland, the people there to see. And I always thought that I was that naughty boy and I wanted to go to Scotland. So I went to Scotland and uh, I have many... Many stories about Scotland and the warmth of the Scottish people and the generosity of the Scottish people. My two sons are studying at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. I can't really pick any one 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 story, but um, uh, what I would say is how now when I'm in Cambridge and I meet people from Scotland and I say, "Well, I'm really delighted to see one of my to meet one of my compatriots." They look at me and they listen to me and. They're sort of taken aback because they don't see me as a compatriot. But then, because I know the place very well and the history very well, I always sort of connect with Scotland. Scotland has been an underdog in some respects, and um, I want to stand up for it. I'm also a great sort of admirer of the Scottish educational system because it combines some of the ideas that you have in America about undergraduate education, the breadth of Education, but then specialization in later years. So it does have great sort of opportunities for people to expand and to learn about about um, subjects that they may not sort of want to major in. Uh, if they were sort of interested in in Arabic, they could take history, they could take geography, and they could just continue with these subjects while specializing in the last year, two years, in one particular subject or two subjects. So I I, I love the countryside. The countryside is brilliant, beautiful. The music, I like it because it's to me it's a very sad music and inside me there's a lot of sadness and that sadness somehow gels with me in some respects. There is also, to some extent, sort of a, a hurt pride in Scotland and that I find to be a little bit endearing. So there are many things about Scotland that, that uh, I like. Sometimes Scots can be too loving towards their own country uh, in a way that makes it exclusive to them, and I feel a little bit isolated from it. But uh, on the whole, it has been a wonderful place for me, and a place that I felt really at home. In fact, when I was going to go to Cambridge, uh, our neighbours and our friends felt as though I have, had let them down. I was a Scot who was turning his back on Scotland, and I had to assure them, in fact, that I considered myself to be an ambassador for Scotland amongst the English Trying to bring some wisdom among the heathen and the enemy down south. So.
0: <laughs> so, are these all the things that you think about when you're ironing? Yes, I do. Can thi- I ask you about your ironing? Oh, of course,
1: you can. I'm, and I'm, <laughs> people talk about yoga. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think that is my yoga. That's my, I, I love ironing. And I think ironing is, again, something that is, I, I think people. Are, are horrid to ironing. They say bad things about it. They say, that's not fair. I think ironing should not be treated that way. I think ironing should be treated with respect and with love and with care. And I just love my Sunday evenings because that is my ironing Sunday, um, my, my ironing evening. I bring my semi-professional iron with tank of water with my also semi-professional ironing board and with baskets of ironing. And I stand there for two, three hours ironing and listening to music. And but what I like about ironing is the fact that um, ironing gives me the time to live in my own mind. That is when I live inside myself. Ironing allows me to go inside myself and to talk to myself sometimes to be angry with myself, sometimes to be critical of myself, sometimes to be loving of myself. Ironing also allows me to remember my dead father. It gives me the space to remember the dead, to remember funny moments, to remember sort of sad moments. Somehow, ironing is the point in my life where I'm in touch with my past, in touch with how I feel. And also, there's a great sort of sense of achievement when you within sort of a minute, with this sort of semi-professional iron, you have something that's crumbled, and you just run the iron over it. uh, And then it comes out really straight and nice. And then I always look forward to wearing what I iron. My wife looks forward to wearing her clothes and I iron them. And my children, nowadays, they don't allow me to iron their uh, shirts because they think it's unfashionable. A crumbled (laughs) shirt is the fashion. But also the other thing which I like about ironing is the fact that um, Sometimes my wife – well, not Actually, practically every Sunday night, she feels sorry for me uh, because I'm ironing for two, three hours, and I exploit that. I want her to feel sorry because she starts to look after me, giving me hugs and kisses, giving me cups of tea and coffee, giving me pieces of cake. (laughs) So it's a way of really, in a way, what I do with ironing is that I get more attention from my wife than I do normally. So I – And she doesn't allow me to do ironing except for one night only, a week, because I think she knows that I'm being crafty about it. So she doesn't want to continue to give me hugs or kisses or whatever it is when I'm... So once a week is enough. (laughs)
0: Let's listen to a little bit more music. Um, You have um, chosen uh, Bob Dylan, Blowing in the Wind. Do you have a story which goes with that? Yes.
1: This song always reminds me of my father and my brother. My father was born in 1889, which is, what, 122 years ago. And my father was married twice. His first wife was a Kurdish woman from Damascus in Syria. Uh, He met her as he was traveling up to Damascus from Tiberias, uh, now in northern Israel, as He was going up there. There was this family of Syrian Kurds coming to Tiberias. Just The British had just come in 1918, 1919 into Palestine at the time. And it turned out that this family was leaving Damascus because the only son they had was killed by a French sniper because they came into Damascus at the time. They declared a curfew. And then their only son went out in the street and he was shot and was killed. So they left Damascus, came to Palestine, headed south to Tiberias. My father uh, met them. He was driving his truck at the moment, um, at that moment, and saw this beautiful woman. Uh, and he instantly left, felt in love, fell in love with her. So he turned back, took them to Tiberias, started to buy the mother, first of all, presents and flowers in order to the mother to get to the daughter, married the daughter, then had a son. And my uh, brother from my father's side went to Austria, and he was a doctor in Austria, and spent most of his life in Austria, in Graz, first in Vienna and Graz, and died there in 2001. And my father's life somehow and my brother's life, and I think to some extent my life, have been lives that have been blowing in the wind. So the idea of walking many, many miles before you, are, you know, before you get your freedom. It just reminds me of, of, of those stories of my father, of my brother, of myself. And I'm hoping that my children will have more settled lives. They will not be blowing in the wind. They'll be rooted in the ground, like a fig tree, perhaps. How many roads must a man walk down? Is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. Yes, and how many
0: years can a mountain exist? Yes, we've been uh, speaking with Professor Yasser Suleiman of Cambridge University.
2: Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.
0: Yes, sir, you have many, many plans for the future. You are always a person full of ideas Uh, new projects. You're a visionary. Can you tell us a little bit, other than traveling all over the Middle East and traveling all over Europe and um, America all the time and doing um, consultancies and sitting on boards of uh, charities and foundations and think tanks, um, what projects do you have?
1: We have... A number of projects. Uh, One of the projects that I'm really interested in and I want to pursue is to try to bring a greater understanding to Middle Eastern history by looking at two groups, Muslims and um, Jews in that part of the world. Because I think we talk quite a lot about a Judeo-Christian tradition. I personally believe there's a very strong Judeo-Islamic tradition. So what I'm trying to do now, working with colleagues uh, in Cambridge at the Wolf Institute in Cambridge, is to try to uh, bring scholars to debate what it means to have a Judeo-Islamic tradition. Because I think Judaism and Islam have many, many commonalities. Now, recent history has somehow made it more difficult for us to think about those commonalities. Um, And what we want to do is to rise above that and to try to tap those commonalities in order to provide young people with a vision of a future that is different from the present, the very tragic presence that we have. The other project that I'm interested in is in what I'm now calling narratives of conversion to Islam. And we are starting this project in Cambridge, concentrating initially on women who are converting to Islam from a variety of backgrounds. Um, some came from a Hindu background, from Christian background, from other backgrounds. And we are looking initially at women who have not converted to Islam, who have converted to Islam not because of, not through marriage. People who have ex- exercised the choice to become Muslims. The reason why we are interested in um, women is that when you read the press and listen to what people sometimes say in moments of candid self-expression Islam gets bad press when it comes to women so the question in my mind is this why is it that some very highly educated women in the United Kingdom are converting to Islam at a time when Islam is being maligned for being anti-women you would sort of think that people would want to turn away from Islam particularly women would want to turn away from Islam so this is the conundrum that we want to look at, and we are doing it first of all in terms of narratives. We would like we are inviting a number of women to take us through the journey that brought them to becoming Muslims. Just talking very freely uh, in a very unstructured way, if they want to, uh, looking at the inspiration to become Muslims, but at the challenges of becoming a Muslim, and the problems they face the tensions they face, how their parents and their families react to them. But at the same time, we would like to bring those, some women into this who have converted to Islam and have walked out of that and have gone back to something else or have become somehow suspended some somewhere else. Because I think perhaps what we need to do also in the future is to look at conversion to other faiths, particularly I'm thinking about the Abrahamic faiths, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, Christianity and Islam in particular, as as religions that accept converts. And the question is this, is that are, are there people who are somehow more ready to convert to another faith than, than others? Um, I'm also interested in looking at the second and third generation. So people have converted. Now, what happens to their children? I know people have converted – Whereas that children refused to convert and sometimes even children had gone back to the original religion of their, um, of their mothers or, or their parents. So it's not a... It's a complex picture, but the initial thought behind it is this, is that what is it, as I said before, what is it that makes a woman who reads all these bad things about Islam want to become a Muslim? What is it that they see in it? Now, once they have become insiders? To what extent is the insider perspective consistent with the expectations they had for Islam? At the same time, I think a lot of the revival and the renewal that's going to come into um, Islamic thought and theologies will come from people, the new Muslims, those Muslims who do not come from a traditional Islamic background, who look at Islam with a fresh perspective. And that in itself is a phenomenon that is worth uh, looking at. So these are two sort of big ideas that I hope to be able to pursue. But I hope also that um, we would establish links with various universities in the world. So we're doing an event called Cambridge and Sarajevo next month. So instead of we can't bring everybody to Cambridge because everybody wants to come and look at this wonderful Colleges, these places. So the idea is to take Cambridge to different parts of the world. So we're doing Cambridge in in Sarajevo in May. We're hoping to. We're definitely doing one in April. Cambridge in Morocco. Uh, we're again. I hope we'll be able to do one Cambridge in Kosovo. We are going out to Kosovo to look into that. So going into Central Europe, where there are Muslim communities that have been actually left on their own, as it were. To what extent can we have a dialogue with those Muslim communities and non-Muslims, because we're interested in that as equally, and therefore taking our center, taking our ideas to the world outside. We're hoping to do one in China, in Beijing, going to Beijing and then going to the places where the Muslim community, uh, locations where Muslims uh, live. Uh, We interact mostly actually with non-Muslims, but um, interacting with Muslims is part of what we want to do. And I speak as somebody who has uh, a great love for things Arab, but uh, Islam has become part of uh, what I do professionally uh, in my center um, as a result of the endowments that we had um, generated.
0: But um, you were also pointing out that um, in the future you see uh, students studying Arabic, uh, not for Islam, but for the Arabs or the Arabic cultures themselves.
1: I think that is something that is um, that has come in and uh, something that is going to become stronger and stronger. The Arab Spring has generated a lot of interest amongst young people, at least in the UK, who are writing to us now, wanting to come, in my case, come study at Cambridge to read Arabic at Cambridge. And we always ask them, why is it that you want to do this subject? Because we want to know... How committed they are to it, and now now we, we have students who are saying, "I really want to know about these amazing movements that are taking place in the Middle East." Uh, we we for a long long time, we felt that the Middle East was and the Arab world was stuck. The Arab world and the Middle East, the Arab world was stuck in in, in a frozen past. But clearly, this is not the case. So the Arab Spring, being a young movement led by young people is finding resonance amongst young people who want to study uh, that part of the world. And these people are not coming into it because they are really interested in learning about Islam. They are coming into it in order to learn about culture, about uh, civilization, but also how the Arabs have championed uh, the social media and have turned it into their own. And use it in order to have their,
0: these amazing revolutions. Okay. Maybe that will be the topic of your next book. I, I, can, I can see, a, uh, I can feel a book coming, with uh, all the collections you already uh, have.
1: We're doing a, an event uh, on the social media uh, in Cambridge. We're hoping to have a big news organization from the least to partners partners with it. Yeah, it would be it would be a fascinating thing to to, to look at because. Um, if somebody had said to any to one of us uh, six months ago that the Middle East the Arab world is going to go through these, through these uprisings, expressions of, of freedom and democracy, we'd have thought that they were nuts and, and um, speaking out of, out of history as out of um, context uh, historical context. But these movements give me hope that a new revival in Arab culture is coming through. And I think this will become a driver amongst students who want to study Arabic. It's not Islam will become a secondary, a secondary driver. It will not be the first driver. I think studying Arab culture for its own sake, without, of course, ignoring Islam and relationships with the region, will be, will be uh, I
0: think, perhaps the prime reason for wanting to do Arabic. Yes sir, it has been delightful talking with you and we will finish off with your last choice of music would you like to announce it yes
1: uh, it's carl of uh, carmina burana and it is the i like it all but i like the bit of it that uh, when the chorus joins in and just lifts you up and it always this always reminds me of in 1981 1982 i lived in a small cottage on a hill in Scotland, outside uh, St. Andrews, and I used to get snowed in quite a bit, and uh, I had a bicycle which I couldn't ride, and I used to forage for food sometimes, go and find potatoes from old farms, get back home, and this was the piece of music I used to listen to, to, just to cheer myself up, and also to imagine myself being part of this huge chorus, so I wasn't on my own, I was singing with those people. I didn't know what I was singing, but it was just a beautiful piece what of music.
0: Wonderful imagination. Mm. What love for life. Mm. We have been speaking with Professor Yasser Suleiman. Yasser, thank you for being with us.
1: Well, pleasure. Thanks for having me.
2: The program you just heard was recorded in April of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.